this is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. On this episode, the Eastern Roman Empire experiences one of those moments that makes it easy for future historians to look back upon and, you know, make the bold claim that, you know, that, that right there, that's the point when it all changed, when, when it all became irrevocably lost. That's it right there. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I'll leave that for you to decide, but it's certainly a pivotal moment in Byzantine history, and it's one that does, in fact, change the entire landscape forever. This is episode 107, and it's entitled Manzikert. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Quote, states that last as long as the Byzantine or the Chinese inevitably experience periods of crisis which appear to threaten their survival. The crisis of the 11th century was perceived by those who lived through it as another turning point in the Byzantine development. The most striking sign of this crisis occurred in the summer of 1071. End quote. These words were written by historian Judith Heron in her book, Byzantium, The Surprising Life of a Medieval Empire. Now, for such a momentous peak in tensions, there must be a context worth building in order to fully understand the massively impactful outcome. So let's begin this episode just before the summer of 1071. By the time Romanus IV moved a force of mercenaries southeast, to tackle the Turkish threat in and around Caesarea in central Anatolia, it was Sultan Alp Arslan of the Seljuk Empire who he would have to face. So how did it go for the Byzantines? For just over a week, Romanus IV tracked the Seljuk army down and chased them across the central plateau until the Turks were forced to drop all their loot from both Annie and Caesarea because it was, it was just slowing them down at that point. Given just another day or two, the Byzantines would have caught up and a clash would have ensued. And when being chased, the last thing you want is to start a fight on your heels. Now, Alp Arslan was smarter than that. He, he ordered a full retreat back into Seljuk territory to regroup. Now, as for Romanus IV, he was feeling pretty confident at that point. He had chased away the Turkish sultan who had wreaked so much havoc already on the empire. This was exactly what he needed to establish his firm control as emperor and displace his wife Eudokia as supreme ruler. But Romanus IV was also ambitious, ambitious to an unhealthy level, one could argue. So he, he decided to push his ragtag army of mercenaries even further, 
but he didn't go after Alparslan. He went after the city of Hierapolis, which was under the Muslim-controlled Emirate of Aleppo. Meanwhile, Alparslan decided to tempt fate and order a very small group of fast-moving Seljuks on horseback to rush behind the emperor's forces as they moved south toward Hierapolis, past Caesarea, and even deeper into Anatolia to a town called Amorium, just 218 miles southeast of Constantinople itself. That is really frighteningly close. This was only meant to raid the town, to sack the town, and to send a message that Romanus's Turkish enemies may have left for the time being, but they were still there, still daring, and could still go just about anywhere they wanted inside of Byzantine territory. Today, we can see this as not an objective of war, but rather as a simple act of terrorism. Romanus's first campaign in the year 1068 against Alp Arslan was a hollow victory, but a victory nonetheless. Romanus's soldiers loved it, but what was really but what was really accomplished? Sure, he shooed off the mighty Seljuks for a while, but even as even Romanus had to realize that that would probably not last too long. And by the time Romanus IV returned to the capital, his demeanor had completely changed. He became the stereotypical quote-unquote stern ruler, and even went so far as to publicly disrespect his wife and Prasudokia quite harshly to the point that she was cowed into submission and simply gave up her remaining power, however much that still was. With such a humiliating retreat against the Eastern Roman Empire, there's no question why Alparslan renewed aggression against them along their eastern and southern borders. And with such a vainglorious Kars descriptor for Romanus IV, not mine, although I probably agree with it, uh, with such a vainglorious man like Romanus IV Diogenes, there's also no question that he would immediately head out to have another crack at the Seljuk pony boy. This time, though, the emperor forced Michael Sellis to accompany him. It was absolutely no secret whatsoever. The enmity, the disgust, the unadulterated hatred Michael Sellis had for Romanus IV. So he probably didn't so he probably did it to make sure Celis and Eudokia wouldn't plot against him while he was out valiantly defending the empire's borders. Celis wrote of the battles that ensued during his second campaign against Alparslan's forces. He wrote, quote, Our men fell in the tens of thousands while a mere handful of our adversaries were taken prisoner. End quote. This no doubt was pointedly intended to discount any effectiveness Romanus IV might have claimed militarily. Celis was eager to rid himself of this pompous pretender. A little negative press couldn't possibly hurt, right? After all this, Carr quotes Celis here, quote, The result of it all was that Romanus became more proud and more insolent than ever, because, forsooth, he had twice commanded an army. He lost respect for everything and were still, the evil counselors to whom he listened led him completely astray, end quote. Of course, Michael Sellis was no evil counselor. Romanus IV's second campaign against Alparslan was, unlike the first, an abject failure. 
And as any student of history knows in the Roman Empire, regardless of which shape or form it manifested itself throughout history, it all came down to one simple question. What have you done for me lately? Romanus IV had twice failed to do two things. One, secure the borders of the empire, and arguably more importantly, two, bring fame and renown to the empire. Under Emperor Romanus IV, Romans became less than proud to be Roman, and that was an unacceptable thing for them to accept. Now, in 1070, Alparslan was pretty confident in his chances against the Eastern Romans, so he once again ramped up the harrying of the borders. But the capital was currently experiencing a nearly unprecedented economic collapse and devaluation of its currency, thus resulting in civil unrest. If it was just an economic downturn, this unrest would have most likely been kept to the lower classes. However, due to the double whammy of devaluation, the upper classes began feeling the pinch as well. And instead of Romanus IV rushing out to meet his old foe, he actually did something intelligent for a change. He gave senior command over to an accomplished general. This accomplished general just so happened to be a man named Manuel, after his grandfather. Manuel Comnenus was this guy's full name, and yes, he was the nephew of Emperor Isaac I Comnenus from just a decade earlier, now at this point long dead. It's worth noting that Manuel had a little brother named Alexios. In fact, later historian uh, Anna Comnenos wrote in the opening lines of her epic account of her dad's life and reign called the Alexiad, well, she wrote the following, quote, The Emperor Alexius, my father, even before he seized the throne, had been of great service to the Roman Empire. In fact, his military career began in the time of Romanos Diogenes. He already seemed remarkable among his contemporaries and exceptionally adventurous, end quote just something to keep in mind. But here's the thing. Under Manuel Comnenos, Alexius's older brother, that is, the Eastern Romans didn't exactly win, but they didn't lose either. Comnenos commanded valiantly, but his armies were forced to retreat without him. That's right. Manuel Comnenos was captured by the Seljuk Turks. Now, you might be asking how this could possibly not be a loss for the Byzantines. They lost the battle, and they lost their much-respected and decorated general. So where's the win? Well, the win comes here. While in Seljuk custody, General Manuel Komnenos befriended the Seljuk general and actually convinced him to defect to Constantinople. So, as Romanus IV was busy juggling economic problems and blaming the recent loss on a Komnenos general, into the city rides not only Manuel Komnenos, but also his Seljuk captor and several hundred Seljuk riders. Manuel Komnenos was the man of that hour. In September of 1070, Alparslan decided to move once again against the Byzantine-Armenian border. He drew his forces south from Ani as he himself moved north from Seljuk territory in modern-day Iraq. 
he pinched the region around Lake Van, just inside the Byzantine border. And while he set up garrisons at newly taken cities Manzikert and Hilat, he immediately sent a few riders quickly southwest to not only gain the loyalty of the local Muslims just outside of the Emirate of Aleppo, but to also sack the Byzantine city of Edessa. Now, by this time, his garrisons were set up and Alparslan himself rode to Aleppo. It's worth noting here that the Emirate of Aleppo was run by Shiites. Alparslan was Sunni. Shiites and Sunnis, still today, not a great mix. This rift in Islam goes back to the very beginning, it seems. Within a generation, I think. Alparslan rode to the city gates and demanded the emir come out and bend the knee. The emir did not. Now, Alparslan ordered then a full siege at that moment. News moved quickly north to Constantinople to Romanus's ears, and it was, it was this right here that set up one of the worst moments. And I mean this, I mean every syllable of this. It's this that set up one of the worst moments in Byzantine history, a moment that will never, ever be forgotten. And it's the moment that was mentioned earlier at the very top of the podcast, where historians can look at it and say, that, that, that right there, that's it. So Romanus IV decided to move against Alparslan. He gathered a whopping 70,000 soldiers, and his car states, quote, crossed the Bosporus in March 1071 to finally settle accounts with the Turkish conqueror, end quote. But this wasn't his normal campaign. After all that had happened, this once proud warrior, and I don't want to discount Romanus Diogenes' bravery and exceptional battlefield presence and fighting abilities, he really was a warrior, it sounds like, and a very respected warrior. But this once proud warrior was now full of self-doubt. His pessimism seethed and his foul mood permeated the entire army. And Celis reports that the hits just kept on coming for the emperor when, per car, quote, a fire killed some of his best horses and destroyed many of his possessions, end quote. It's like the whole thing just started off on the wrong foot. Like the, like the Byzantine army was at the outset pushed onto its back foot. Carr tells us of Romanus's two choices. One, take the fight to the Seljuks. Or two, be more patient, staying along the borders, refortifying, resupplying forts up and down the borders. One, be aggressive. Two, be defensive. It's the ultimate choice in war, as it is in sports, right? At the head of a 70,000-man army, what decision do you think Rabanus IV made? Yeah, <laughs> he ordered a full steam ahead posture. Nakar admits, though, quote, Romanus Diogenes' move caught Alparslan by surprise, end quote. But not because he was in the area and just lounging around. No, Sultan Alparslan was currently down in the Holy Land on his way to Cairo to bleed the Fatimids dry of their power. He was forced to turn back immediately, as this was the largest force the Eastern Romans had brought his way. So, I mean, 
why take the risk and leave, right? While Alp Ellersland rushed back to the front lines, which were by this time out near modern-day Armenia, at the easternmost edges, and I mean the easternmost edges of the Anatolian Plateau, which is pretty much the entirety of what we know as Turkey today, while the Seljuks hurried back, Romanos Diogenes ordered one part of his army, under the command of Joseph Tarkaniates, to take the city of Helot and convert the castle there to be the forward base of operations. Another large contingent, led by his Grand Domesticus of the West, a quite prestigious imperial position, mind you, on the European side of the empire, he ordered this Grand Domesticus of the West to storm the fort at the town of Manzikert. The Grand Domesticus of the West took it, quote-unquote, says Carr, without struggle. Oh, this Grand Domesticus of the West? Well, he was named Nikephoros Bryennius. Now, the name might be familiar to you. Nikephoros Bryennius was the man that Isaac Komnenos, before becoming emperor, had worked with on a coup to overthrow the tyrannical emperor Michael VI, and subsequently got his eyes gouged out by a loyalist of Michael VI. But it wasn't this Nikephoros Bryennius. See, the guy who lost his eyeballs and helped install Isaac Komnenos as emperor, that was this Nikephoros Bryennius' dad. Over the years, between Isaac I and Constantine X, the Bryennius family had enjoyed some serious social mobility, which is saying something, as they were already pretty close to the top. Nikephoros Jr. became a successful general, thus earning him the role, as I said, of Grand Domesticus of the West. And here he was now, serving Emperor Romanus IV. Someone else serving Romanus IV, Manuel Komnenos, remember him? Well, as a senior-level general under the emperor, he was sent north to a region called Bithynia, the Roman province basically lining the southern coastline of the Black Sea. While there, he became bothered by some pain in his ears. As silly as it may sound to us today, a thousand years ago, without antibiotics and painkillers and fever reducers and all those, well, this seemingly simple ear infection turned sour pretty quickly, and before anyone knew it, the meteoric rise of Emperor Isaac I's nephew was tragically cut short. Yeah, Manuel Komnenos, older brother of young Alexius Komnenos. Manuel died in April of 1071. Now, this death left such a wound on the mighty Komnenos family that more than four decades later, Manuel's niece, who's not even born yet, Anna, Komnenos, who I mentioned earlier, well, she would write about it on the first page of her Alexiad. But it's more than just Manuel's death that pushed the story onto the pages of Anna's epic tome. Manuel's death resulted in a specific decision that might have saved another brother, Alexius, for later greatness. Anna wrote, quote, Although he was only 14 years old, he wanted to serve on campaign under Diogenes, who was leading an expedition against the Persians, a most important task. And the ambition of the young Alexius threatened the barbarians. He made it clear that one day he would come to grips with them. And when that happened, 
his sword would have its fill of blood. Despite the youth's warlike fervor, the emperor did not let him go on on this campaign because his mother had suffered a grievous loss. She was mourning the recent death of her eldest son, Manuel, who great and heroic deeds had made him famous throughout the empire. In order that she might not be left comfortless, if another were sent off to the wars, she feared that he too might die before his time on some unknown battlefield. So he was left behind by his comrades against his will, but the future gradually opened up to him a fine opportunity for brave exploits. End quote. Sure, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. but despite her knowledge on how things played out after her father Alexius was left behind, as Romanus IV went off to meet Alparslan way out east, well, we can't deny that the fact that Alexius Komnenos was left behind, and he would, in fact, go on to some pretty extraordinary deeds. He's going to play a pivotal role in, I would venture to say, world history. So stay tuned on that one. So Helot was home base, while Brianus's capture of Manzikert served as an outpost to keep an eye on any enemy movements. In the meantime, Romanus sent emissaries to Alparslan, meeting up in Edessa. Their message was, surprisingly, a peace offering. Before hostilities commenced, would the sultan be willing to accept terms that allowed certain lands gained over the last three years by the Seljuks into Byzantine territory would be transferred and honored by the emperor if Manzikert and the surrounding areas, really much of Armenia, including the very large city of Ani, if these would be returned to the Eastern Romans. Now, both exchanges would be permanent and hinged on one contingency. All Seljuk incursions and activities inside current Byzantine borders would cease. Carr tells us that Alparslan was initially inclined to accept the offer as the Seljuk Empire was set to gain far more than the Eastern Romans would. However, apparently, in Romanus's way, quote-unquote, the aggressive tone that the message had was alarming and untrustworthy. So Alparslan picked up the pace on his return. I think that was a no. So the build-up to what became known as the Battle of Manzikert from this point was a series of bonehead gaffes, lapses in judgment, disloyalty, and faulty intelligence. For the longest time, Days on end, Romanus IV was absolutely oblivious to where his arch-nemesis was at any given point, and he was receiving conflicting reports as well. The forces at Manzikert seemed to be off on its own, which was an issue. Then you have another character who emerged on the scene, Andronicus Ducas. That's right, Ducas. Remember Andronicus? Well, Romanus IV Diogenes had just married the wife of Constantine X Ducas, after she promised to never remarry, thus allowing Constantine's son Michael Ducas to gain the throne. You see what's at play here. Now, Andronicus Ducas was the Grand Domesticus of the East, and he was low-key treacherous toward his emperor. So Andronicus Ducas, the Grand Domesticus of the East, and Manuel Komnenos, the Grand Domesticus of the West, both serving the quite unpopular Romanos IV on this third campaign against a far superior enemy, having just lost two other campaigns. Ducas and Komnenos 
two families that overall were on good terms with each other. Two families who had just recently enjoyed having a member as emperor of the entire Eastern Roman Empire. Both of them, as they were heading into the summer or the spring of 1071, led major contingencies of Romanus' army. Yes, see where this is going. The one thing that catches, though, is, of course, Manuel's death, but that side of the army still was loyal to the Comneni. But yeah, that wasn't a question (laughs) uh, about, do you see where this is going? It wasn't really a question. I know you know what's at play here. So by August 16th, 1071, Alp Arslan appeared seemingly out of nowhere and attacked Helot, the one place that the Byzantines didn't think he'd attack first. It was their strongest holdout. Manzikert was a far more likely spot, if not just employing a tactic of random raids and ambushes and even hit and runs to wear them all down. An all-out attack on a considerably fortified stronghold wasn't on their radar, which was exactly what Alp Arslan was banking on. Now, with everything at play within Romanus's ranks, it's very possible that he was a victim of disloyalty. General Joseph Tarkaniates was absolutely capable with a proven record to repel such attacks, but it was, all, it was almost as if he'd folded before a stout defense of the place could happen. Before Romanus knew it, news came that Tarkaniates negotiated a peace that allowed him and his immediate forces to retreat. Helot was quickly and easily gained back by the Seljuks. So who was it? Who could Romanus IV blame for Tarkaniates' turning? Tarkaniates was under the direct ranks of the Grand Domesticos of the East, Nicephorus Bryennius. Was a Bryennius responsible? Well, the Bryennius family was also loyal to the Ducas family back in Constantinople, so was their foul play coming from way out west in the capital? There's no firm evidence, but I don't know. It seems kind of fishy to me. Next, Romanus IV looked to Manzikert. That's all he had left, right? But being the horse-centered culture they were, before he'd even turned in the direction of the fort there, he heard that Alparslan had already dispatched a contingent of his army to take it back. And that contingent did actually take it back. Manzikert was now in Seljuk hands again. All Romanus IV could think of is how much the Dukai and Komneni families just loved how he was, how this was all playing out. He knew there'd be hell to pay back home. If he didn't do something drastic and gain a major, and I mean major win, Romanus IV was finished. By August 23rd, just two days later, in 1071, he made it to Manzikert with just about all of his 70,000 soldiers and mercenaries. Lucky for him, the Armenians knew their Seljuk enemies well. They'd been harassed and then swiftly conquered just a decade or so before this, hence why this region was targeted by Romanus IV for a showdown in the first place. These Armenians scaled the fort, and they retook it for the Byzantines. Carr explains that the next day, on August 24th, Romanus, well, he breathed just a little easier. He had a base of operations once again, 
quote-unquote, on the slope of an extinct volcano now called Sufan Dag that had a convenient supply of fresh water. And with his intelligence telling him Alparslan was nowhere around, he sent out quite a large number of foraging parties across the land to gather what they could. One party was attacked by Seljuk riders, and Romanus was feeling good that day, so he ordered his Grand Domesticos of the East, Nick Forrest Bryanius, to follow the riders as they retreated. A crystal clear message must be sent. Now, was that message for Alparslan, or was it for his detractors and naysayers back in Constantinople? No one's really sure, but Nikephoros Bryanius was unsuccessful due to numerous counter-ambushes. So Romanus sent out another man, another Nikephoros, a man named Nikephoros Basilakios, who was similarly stymied. The difference was that Bryanius made it back to camp while Basilakios was captured and his men all slaughtered. But it's not as if Bryanius just galloped back sweaty and frustrated, but okay. Oh no, Nikephoros Bryanius, having just been sent on a fool's errand, came limping back into camp with two arrows lodged in his armor and an arrow wound to the neck. He made it. He lived, but it couldn't have put him in a very good mood when it came to his personal feelings toward his emperor. The next morning, Romanus received another blow. A band of Ogu's Turk mercenaries disappeared and defected back to their Seljuk kinsmen. They had been on Romanus' side yesterday. This morning, they're not. That same day, August 25th, he received an emissary from Alparslan's camp proposing a cessation of hostilities. In fact, it wasn't peace Alparslan wanted. He had actually become quite sick of Romanus IV, but he had put a much larger campaign on hold to deal with this Byzantine hiccup. What Alparslan really wanted was to get back to his conquest of Egypt. Shiite Egypt, mind you, and the destruction of the Fatimid dynasty. Romanus, of course, denied the offering and instead required all Seljuk forces leave the area and never return. The next day, on August 26th, Romanus led his entire army out of Mansikert, quote-unquote, according to Carr, in battle array across the treeless wastes in search of Alparslan. All day, Below a scorching sun, he marched his troops. For what? They found nothing and no one, except exhaustion and frustration. But they also found themselves almost ten miles away from base camp, out in the middle of a barren flatland. It occurred to him, as he ordered a full retreat, he found that he was too little too late. Carr writes, quote, Unbeknownst to the emperor, the sultan had been watching him all the time, effectively concealed in the surrounding hills. When he saw the imperial standards being turned around, he gave the order for a general attack. The moment could not have been a better choice. End quote. During the day's march, Bryanius had sent his men after very small and insignificant bands of Seljuks, acting like little pests just outside the periphery. But what this did was leave Romanus without a right flank and it was too late to bring them back in time for the oncoming riders heading toward him. Seljuks, being largely on horseback, encircled Romanus's entire army, minus Bryanius, his right flank, now too far away to be of much consequence. 
And one man wrote, quote, It was like an earthquake. The shouting, the sweat, the swift rushes of fear, the clouds of dust, and not least the hordes of Turks riding all around us. End quote. In the chaos, Romanus was cut off momentarily and had to personally fight his way through a horde of Turks, even getting a spear lodged in his right shoulder. Romanus's horse fell beneath him, innumerable arrows piercing the poor beast's body. Carr writes, quote, staggering to his feet, intent on keeping up the fight, but fainted from the loss of blood. His body was indistinguishable from that of a host of fallen soldiers around him, end quote. As the battle subsided and the two armies separated in the setting sun, Romanus IV, emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, lay dying under already dead men, Byzantine, Seljuk, Frank, Macedonian. In death, does it really matter? And there he lay through the night, bleeding and drifting in and out of consciousness, no doubt. He would find out why it was so easy to lose the battle with such a stout force. Not only was Bryennius too far away to be of any help whatsoever, but Andronicus Ducas had pulled his entire contingent, a small army in and of itself, and assuming the battle was lost before it began, he left his emperor all alone in the midst of the fight. By the time the morning came, Andronicus Ducas and his force were already half a day away on its way back to the capital. Carr writes, quote, If Ducas had followed basic procedures, he would have used his reserve to try and stem the Seljuk advance and plug gaping holes in the front line. He did nothing of the kind, end quote. Was it incompetence? Or was it something far more sinister? Well, a clue, or shall we say an answer to our question, can be seen when Ducas returned to Constantinople. Records, along with our author John Carr, explicitly say that Andronicus Ducas staged a coup on behalf of his kinsman, the son of former emperor Constantine X Ducas, one Michael Ducas. And that's exactly what happened. Before word of Romanus's fate reached the capital, Michael Ducas became Emperor Michael VII Ducas, assumed the title of Emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Ducai found themselves back in the driver's seat. We find the Varangian guard was ordered to split up. One half would guard Michael VII, while the other arrested his mother, Eudokia, and see her safely to a nearby nunnery to live in a sort of exile. But during this near purge of the palace, a new Ducai regime made itself abundantly present. With Romanus IV cast aside and forgotten about already, his wife whisked away to a nunnery, and a Ducas back on the throne? Who were their only possible rivals at this point? Well, it turns out that this new Dukai leadership was far less trusting than previous generations, and their chief rival became their longtime allies, the Komnenos family. John Ducas, the same man who activated the and coordinated the Varangian Guard earlier, well, he was now chief minister, the position Michael Sellis held for so long. John Ducas had unilaterally moved against the Komneni by sending Anna Dalassine off to a nunnery too. Anna was Isaac I's Komnenos' sister-in-law. Even through this slight on her honor, the Komneni family knew when to act and when to shut up and take it, 
and now is the time, in such a frenzy for power, to simply shut up and take it on the chin. And that's where we'll end the episode. Manzikert was a catastrophic failure for not only Romanus IV Diogenes, but for the entire empire. I cannot possibly understate this. Not only do we see a new emperor, we don't even know if the old emperor's dead or not. He was last seen fighting his way through a horde of Seljuks, his horse being killed underneath him. The Ducas family were back in power now. The Komneni stayed in their lanes, though still very much at the top of the ladder. But more than any of that, Manzikert symbolizes a figurative death for the Eastern Roman Empire. The idea that the Eastern Roman Empire was the preeminent power in the Middle Ages ended with Romanus IV losing to Alp Arslan, just outside of Manzikert, in August of 1071. Never again will the Eastern Romans hold the level of power and influence they had before August 26th of that year. August 26th, 1071. This date really was the date that the Eastern Roman Empire was diagnosed with a terminal disease. They would experience good days in the future still, but their fate was now written in stone. The Turks were going absolutely nowhere. The extent of their territory, that is the Eastern Roman Empire's, the extent of their territory would never be larger than it was the day before Manzikert. It would take a few more centuries, but make no mistake, the ghost of Manzikert will hang over those centuries until, spoiler alert, the Turks, the very descendants of Alparslan in 1071, would breach the walls of Constantinople and collapse the Eastern Roman Empire forever. On the next episode with Michael VII Dukas now at the helm, we'll see the immediate fallout of Manzikert and the absolute dire straits the Empire found itself in. And I can't wait to tell you about it.